This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hello and welcome to Views on View. Today on our panel, we have Chris Fritz, core team member, contributor, and speaker. Hi. We have Joe Ames, organizer of the Framework Summit. Hey, everybody. And I'm your host for today, Divya Sasidharan, View contributor and speaker. Joining us on our panel, we have Ed Yerborough. Ed, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, uh, so it's Ed Yarborough. Uh, I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, so um, Divya never gets name. anyone get her name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got oh, a particular no. surname to pronounce. At, at least you didn't call me Eddie. Yes, it's true. So, uh, so yeah, I'm a software engineer for the BBC in London, and I uh, I maintain few test utils. Cool. Can you speak more about what ViewTestUtils is? Yeah, sure. So ViewTestUtils is, is basically a library to help make unit testing view components easier. So when you unit test view components, you, you basically want to mount a component and then you want to interact with the mounted component and check that it produces the right output. So ViewTestUtils makes provides some methods for you to mount a component with some options and then some methods for you to interact with the com- mounted component instance. Can you explain that concept mounted component? Yeah, so so when you have a, a when you have a view component, it's just uh, it's basically just some options, right? Like a, a normal component. It's a JavaScript object with some options. But when you use it in a view application, uh, it gets converted into a view instance. So if you've created a view application, you've probably written new view right like right. what you're doing there is creating a view instance mm-hmm. and if you pass in the l option uh, under the hood view uses that to find a dom node and then mount the component which basically sets it running and makes it render the uh, virtual dom tree that's used to generate the dom nodes that are rendered in the dom so, so that's what mounting is it's basically setting the component running so essentially, when you use view test utils, you're writing unit tests. Is that right? Yeah. So I think view test utils is mainly for writing unit tests and snapshot tests. So not for writing end-to-end tests. No, not really. And so if you were to use view test utils, would you use it by itself? Or would you have to use it with a test runner like Jest or Jasmine or Mocha? So it's, uh, it's framework agnostic. You could use it with any test runner. But because we're mounting a component and generating DOM nodes, it needs to be run in a DOM environment. So if you're running them in Node with something like Mocha, then you're going to need to run JS DOM, which is a, a JavaScript implementation of the DOM. And Jest, which is the testing library that I normally use, by default, it runs test files inside a, a sandbox JS DOM environment. So it works with any framework, but I've found that it, it works best with Jest. What, what, what works best with Jest? I'm curious. Well, the, it's, it's the easiest to set up. 
with Jess. And because Jess runs everything in a sandbox environment, it means that if your test does have any side effects, like if it changes anything in, in the window, which is like needs to be run, the window needs to be running in, on the global object when you run these tests. So if you change anything on the window, then it changes that for all the future tests. But if you're using Jest, because it runs them in like a sandbox Jest environment, it only affects tests that are in the, the test file that you're running, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So it sort of makes testing easier in other ways for view components. Uh, yeah, so it makes, it, well, it makes the setup a lot easier. So with Jest, there's like the serial config approach, and it's geared up for testing client-side code in a node environment. So um, can you speak more to examples of components and things that you would use to test uh, with view test utils? Yeah, so uh, basically, say I had like a, a counter component, right? And uh, I had a counter component that rendered a count value and it had a, also rendered a button. And each time you click the button, it would increment the value by one. So I could write a test um, that mounted that counter component and then dispatched a DOM click event on the button and asserted that the count value that was rendered incremented by one. So that's like a simple unit test for a review component. Got it. So like, what are good patterns to use um, when you're testing? Do you have certain strategies that you particularly use when you're using view test utils or when you're testing view components? Uh, so in general, I... Basically, I try to make it so that my unit tests tie myself to an implement, don't tie myself to an implementation for the component, if that makes sense. So I, I try and, um, when I'm running tests, make sure I, I focus on just giving a component an input and then asserting against the output that the component generates. Because then I'm free to read back to the component to implement the, the behavior in a different way without breaking the unit test. So that's... The, the first thing that I do when I'm writing uh, unit tests. I think another thing uh, is to consider what you should test, like, or, or if you should write unit tests uh, for view components. So mm -hmm. part of, yeah, part of unit testing view components is deciding if you actually need to write the unit test in the first place. Uh, definitely. That's a very good question to ask. Do you have an answer to that? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I had a comprehensive answer. I've got some principles I try and follow. But yeah, I think it's very difficult to give a definitive answer of when you should write a unit test and when you shouldn't. But um, sure. I mean, I, I think, for example, if a component has a lot of logic, then that's probably a good sign that you should write a unit test. Uh, another, another good sign is if, if the code is hot, right? So if the code runs a lot in your in your test uh, in your sorry in your application or or if people work on it a lot if you, if you've got like a component that's having a lot of features added to it and that's a, a good candidate to have unit tests because you're going to be running those unit tests often and getting the the benefit of um, having written them so if it's a heavily utilized feature then write you might probably want to write a unit test for it yeah so I mean, or so basically, right? When you're writing tests, you're spending some time writing the tests, and the 
in the hope that the time you spend writing it is going to be say like paid back in the time that you save in the future. So if you spend an hour writing a unit test, you want to save yourself in the future more than an hour's worth of time that you would have spent checking whatever that unit test is is testing for you. Completely. And in a sense, I think this is what's implied by what you're saying is that the test in itself works as a form of documentation because as a developer, you have insight into what a feature or piece of code does having through and read the code itself. Yeah, it's, it's a lot easier to start working on a component if you can read through the test and see what how it was intended to, to behave. Completely. You also talked about components with a lot of logic, right? So do you mean just like business logic or what about like display and state type logic? Yeah, so I think all of those, those things count as logic. So anything where you've, yeah, you've, you've written some code that maybe has multiple branches in it, ultimately generate some different output. So that output could be just adding a class name to an element, but it could also be sending an HTTP request or, or dispatching a store event. So I think any kind of logic that's complicated would benefit from a unit test. Gotcha. So I kind of have a little bit of an implementation or, you know, a sort of a fine question here. Let's say I got a component that I'm doing a lot. It's, you know, in the template as well as in the uh, component where let's say that I'm, I've got 10 different bindings, you know, variables in there. And I've got a couple of uh, conditional display areas as well. Should I write, let's, let's say, let's say that exact uh, example. I've got five bindings and I've got two different conditionals, right? Conditional display areas. Should I be writing like, one test to test all of that or five tests or seven tests or uh, 15 tests or should I be <laughs> so, testing yeah. all that at all? I, like, I think it depends on a few things. So uh, firstly, you could probably capture a lot of that with snapshot tests as well as unit tests. But also it depends if that component is going to be around for a while. Like if you're going to work on it in the future and add extra features, and you're going to have to check a lot that it's still working. Or if you've just written that component and you're probably never going to look at it again. And if you do, you can, you know, you can test all of its functionality within like two minutes of, of working on the browser. So I think it depends on, like I said, whether writing those unit tests is going to pay off in the future. Mm hmm. And you just mentioned snapshot tests. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Like, what is a snapshot test and when exactly would you use it? Sure. So, a snapshot test basically uh, takes a snapshot of, or it takes some kind of serializable value, which is basically like any value in JavaScript that could be converted to a string, and it saves that value. And the next time that you run that test, uh, it's going to generate a new value and then compare the new value to the old value. So, for example, you could mount a component that has, uh, you know, some HTML, generate some HTML. You could mount that component uh, and create a snapshot test with the uh, DOM node. And that's going to save, the, it's basically going to look like HTML. It's going to save a snapshot of that HTML. And then you change some functionality and run the test again in a week's time. And it's going to regenerate the uh, DOM nodes 
and then compare it to the previously saved version and see if there are any differences. And if there are, then it will throw an error because your new version isn't matching the saved snapshot that you're testing against. So basically like auto- automatically capturing strings of HTML and then just comparing those strings? So you have to pass in the value that you want to snapshot test. And mm. uh, so you could like just compare any, just a random string. You can have like a test that calls a function that sums two numbers together and save a snapshot of that. And that could be your test. But with few components, I think it's really useful to uh, create a snapshot with like the rendered, with the DOM node, which you know, when in the, in the actual snapshot, it looks like HTML. So it's not just for visual snapshots. It's just you can use it for anything, right? But it's ultimately it's a what it's comparing as a string. It's not comparing like an image. No, so yeah, you used to have, or you still have uh, ways of testing where you'll literally start your application and take an image of your application and save that, and then in the future, when the test runs again, it will do the same thing: start the application and compare the image to a saved image. But um, snapshot tests don't do that. They say you know, string serializable uh, values. I, I guess you could save the image as a string. <laughs> but <laughs> but the yeah, output, like when it failed, you wouldn't, I don't know, unless you're much better at like reading, you know, I- image binaries uh, or whatever, whatever you would call them than I am, then it might be difficult to tell what exactly is going wrong. Like, is this button the wrong color or yeah, that could be difficult. And so in order to perform a snapshot test, you would essentially be using Jest or you'd be leaning on Jest for that functionality? Oh, yeah. So Jest, Jest has a really good snapshot implementation. I actually don't know any other frameworks that, that support snapshot tests like Jest does. But yeah, Jest, so Jest includes a snapshot testing library. And you're basically, in your test, you're going to mount a view component using view test utils and then call the uh, Jest to match snapshot matcher with the, uh, the DOM nodes generated by the component. Gotcha. And I noticed in you're also requiring a library called Vue.js. Can you speak more to that and that piece of Vue test utils and what exactly that does? Uh, sure. So Jest basically has its own module system um, under the hood. And that means that it also has to have its own compiling system to compile a JavaScript that wouldn't normally run in Node into JavaScript that does run in Node. So you can't use Webpack to, to compile for Jest. We haven't actually talked about that, but when you're writing few components, mm-hmm. often you're, you're writing single file components and uh, you, you can't run that in, like that's not valid JavaScript. You can't run that in Node or in the browser. So you need to compile it before you can test it. And um, so... Vue.js is basically a compiling library for Jest that uh, converts view files into JavaScript objects. So you Got can, it. You can yeah, compile single file components in Jest. And so taking a step back, when you, when you do testing in Vue, you can test using single file components where you're requiring a .view file in your test. And there's also a second method where you are instantiating a view instance and then checking a value or you know, whatever is rendered within that. What is the difference between doing it one way or the other? Or is there any? 
So when you say create instantiating your instance, you mean you know still importing a component but in, instantiating an instance. So not really. It's it's not really importing the component. More so creating like if you do new view and then you you just write the template yourself essentially. And so instead of importing single file component, you're creating that component within your test itself. Like in a before each block, for example, which I've seen that is one way of doing tests where you're you're not extrapolating your component into separate. Like if you wanted to, I don't know. It's 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 almost like a just for the sake of testing the thing, kind of. So maybe like if you were testing a mixin or something, you might make a yes, fake. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. If if you're testing a mixin or um, where you could just like pull in a specific template and then have that view instance render that specific template. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that sounds, so, so if you're importing the component, then that, that's basically what view test users is doing. Like you're, you're going to import a component and then call mount and under the hood, it's basically calling new view. There are some extra steps. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I mean, either way you're sort of, you're achieving this, you're doing the same thing, basically you're creating a, a view instance in yeah in your test got it and so when you're creating or when you're you test utils to do testing there are specific additional methods that you view test util adds to allow you to set data for example set props can you speak more to those methods and like the reasoning behind adding those to view test utils yeah so there's some methods like set props and there's some we added recently like uh, set value which is something that you would use on a uh, an input element. So if you want to test uh, an input element, you have to set the value of it directly. Like you have to get the uh, element reference and then set the value. But if you're if you've bound your data with V model, you also have to basically force the V model to update. So if if you were writing this test yourself in pure JavaScript, you set a value of an input element and then you have to dispatch a input event on that input to update the v model value so we've included a set value method that effectively does that under the hood there are some other methods like set checked which does a similar thing for check boxes and radio buttons got it and so essentially those are if you call it sort of sugar syntax over uh, native functions, say view.setData, view.dollarSetData that allows you to set data to a view instance and so on. But it's just a wrapper around view test utils that allows you to do that same functionality. Yeah. Correct? So most, okay. yeah. So all of all view test utils is, is all, the, all of the methods, they're wrappers around, or most of them are wrappers around view and native DOM methods to do something like, dispatch an event on an element or yeah set the state of a view instance got it okay so if i wanted to i could use set data but if i felt more comfortable using the native way of setting data using view i could do that as well and they would both render essentially the same thing yeah okay so I have an interest, uh, kind of an interesting question that occurred to me. Can you actually test view components without using view test utils? Is that possible? Yeah, you definitely can. So um, like what Divya was saying earlier, you can you basically just create a view instance yourself and then you can use 
like native view methods or traverse through the DOM yourself. But there are a few sort of gotchas that might trip you up. What are those gotchas? <laughs> Is it a so, nice uh, short, easy list? So, um, so what I just described about when you, when you set the value on an input, I don't think many people would think that you'd also have to trigger an input event to actually update the vModel bound um, value. Because they don't realize that it doesn't happen like automatically when you just set value? Yeah, I, I guess so. And another um, utility that ViewTestUtils gives you that I really enjoy is create local view. <laughs> yeah. And so, I think that uh, covers a big gotcha. Yeah, definitely. Create local view basically makes like a scoped view constructor for you to change in your test. So it gives you a way to write scoped unit tests. Because under the hood, when you create a view instance, you're using the, the view base constructor. And if you make changes to that, then every single future instance that you create is going to have those changes added to it. So it's like a it's polluted with your values. So for example, if you use view.use view router, now oh, yeah. like every <laughs> test is using view router, like whether you want it to or not. Yeah. Um, okay. And view, view router, view router, sorry, is uh, especially bad because when you install view, view router on the base constructor, it adds router and root as read-only properties on the view prototype. So there's no way that you can ever override them for the rest of your tests, which just can cause a, low, a, a world of pain for people who don't know why they can't change these values or where, where it got set. So yeah, the solution is to always install plugins on a, a scoped local view so you avoid polluting the base view constructor. So would, would, um, would create local view then automatically destroy that view instance when that test finishes running? Or like it just scopes it directly to that specific test? So, it, well, it just creates like another view constructor. And then when you pass yep. it into the... Uh, so you have to pass it into mounting options. And then view test utils okay. will use that constructor to create the view instance. Got it. Something else that I was curious about, are there any common mistakes that you see people make in testing view components, you know, with or without view test utils that you'd like to talk about? Like anything that you frequently tell people, it's like, oh yeah, you can actually do this and they didn't even realize it and it makes their life a lot easier. So, um, so most of my interactions with people are the few through the, uh, the issues tracker on view test utils. And, um, by far the most issues have to do with view router, which we just talked about. So I think it's the, the biggest mistake I see people making is installing everything on the base view construct rather than using local view. And yeah, I don't really see too many other common mistakes. And maybe it's not a mistake, but a lot of people get confused about selecting DOM elements in tests. Like they don't know if they should add refs onto elements so that their tests are sort of almost agnostic of the actual tag that they're testing or whether they should you know add classes and ids to make it so their tests are selecting elements without asserting the the, the tag so yeah I, think, I see a lot of people getting confused about that and i don't really have an answer i think that it is quite difficult when you're writing 
client side tests when you're when you're checking like a, an element as the output because you are almost tying yourself down to an implementation detail uh, when you when you're testing that for example the p element is rendered yeah and when you say an implementation detail like it's something that like if it was no longer rendering a p element but it was rendering some other element it's probably more likely that you decided to change it rather than that it broke yeah exactly so you know if you decide to change something from a p element to a span you made that decision it's probably not going to it's not going to break your your functionality but now you're going to have to go and change your unit test so it just gives you more work to do like every time you want to change that and then people like don't want to run their tests so i was like oh maybe we'll just skip for now <laughs> <laughs> and then the tests are basically useless because people aren't paying any attention to them yeah it's, it's difficult okay so don't test implementation details things that you know you're probably likely to change and doesn't necessarily mean the app is broken well i wouldn't necessarily say don't test implementation details let's just say be try and keep your tests that do test implementation details to a minimum like i think that sometimes it's very difficult to avoid checking a p p element like i personally i would rather not change my markup like i'd rather not add a ref to an element or a, a class to an element just to test it I'd rather just check the, the tag and then have to change it in the future. But I think either way isn't ideal. So just try to keep tests that check the, the output of a component is in like the DOM output. Try and keep them to a minimum. Yeah, I guess one middle ground that I sometimes find is like when I'm testing a form, for example, and the form has some validation. And so sometimes I want to test to see if you know, there's a validation message that actually shows up, you know, then I'll, I'll look for like somewhere within this form, I see some element that contains this text. And I, I look for part of that validation message, you know, so it might be, you know, like password, like must be present or something like that. And, yeah, and that's, that's partly an implementation detail. Like I could change it to, you know, like password must exist. Yeah, so you're just trying to tie it as loosely as possible, while, but make sure that it is still testing what you wanted to test. Yeah, I, the way that I try to think about it is, like, what, what, how would I actually explain it to someone who's not technical? And then I try to how test the things the, that I would explain about like, how this should work. Yeah. Right, okay. Show a message, and the message should say this. And that way, like, if I, as soon as I start like, bringing in details that are, that are pretty technical, then I'm probably testing an implementation detail. And there are exceptions to that, but it's a general rule I try to follow. I usually try to extrapolate details or implementation details as a whole. So for example, you're talking about form validations. If I wanted to know that a validation message should be here, I could just create a slot where the message should be and then you know, like make sure that that message shows up and then check that the slot has content, for example, because I know that that slot always has and should have a specific message, but I don't really care what the content of the message is. I just want to make sure that there is a message there, for example. And that abstracts away the actual implementation details per se, but you know that that content is there. That's one way of doing it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like doing that too. That's a good idea. Like breaking things down into like smaller components so that like mm -hmm. you can trust that the validation messages work because those are tested separately. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it, it circles back to what Ed was mentioning where you're breaking down your tests to the smallest possible unit 
and you're testing that so that it's very clear what exactly you're testing for and it's tied directly to a very specific part of your application. And so you don't have to worry about your test breaking when like another part of your application breaks because it's tied specific, specifically to one piece of it rather than like being convoluted and mixed in with other pieces. And so we didn't talk about this much, but I'm curious if someone were to use, you talked about using view router with uh, view test utils. What is it? What is the steps or the process for using Vuex with view test utils? If you were to check that a component that uses Vuex is getting specific data and so on. So there are a few different ways to do it. You could, uh, like if your, if your store isn't actually doing anything asynchronous, you could just literally use, like create a store using your real store config and pass that into the component as it's mounted. And that can be good if, if the store is fairly simple mm-hmm. and like easy to follow. And then you can test the whole lifecycle. So if you're updating something in the store and then the component does something in, in response to that, then you can test the whole lifecycle without actually checking that it's dispatching an action or committing a mutation. But, but it, it, does, it depends. Okay. So you might have to just mock the store out or create a running store, but only with a select few values and then just check that the component renders correctly using those values. Or Yeah, there are lots of different approaches. I think but, that my, my general approach to testing is try to do as little mocking as possible. But the, the more mocking you do, the less realistic your tests are. And the, yeah, the more chance there are for your tests and your production codes to get out of sync. Yeah. So if you can get away with using a, a full Vuex store in your test, then I would, I would do that. But if you say you wanted to, let's say, make an API call, which is asynchronous, then you mentioned a little bit about this, that the process by which you test when you're doing things asynchronously is different from when you're doing things synchronously. Can you explain? what that means yeah so when you're testing something asynchronously you have to change your tests so by default most test runners have synchronous tests uh, mm-hmm. now if you want to do something async in your tests you're going to have to change the test to run asynchronously and there's a few different ways you could do that that like older way of doing it was to use this callback that's passed into tests mm-hmm. uh, so there's like a done callback and you would you know, wait for whatever async action was happening and then call done once you've uh, run your assertion. Mm-hmm. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do slash co slash views on view. But yeah, now that you have async await, in, in Node, you can use some helper libraries to basically 
wait for the the next tick because so most of the time when you're testing async you want to mock anything that's truly asynchronous like http calls that could take seconds so you yeah. want to mock everything out and make sure that everything is either a resolved promise or yeah so you basically want to make sure that everything's just a resolved promise which is still asynchronous but it happens on the next tick mm-hmm. so yeah, you can, there's loads of helper libraries that you can use that basically uh, wait until that next tick's happened and then you can run your assertion and test that whatever you wanted to happen has happened. So you, cur- you can't currently do that with view test utils. You would have to pull in another library like that, ha- that allows you to handle promises or allows you to mock promises for you to... Pre- um, as well, so it depends what you need to I'll- do. Like if you're... Okay. Yeah, if you want to, I don't know, if you're injecting like a, a wrapper around Axios, for example, in mm-hmm. your in your components, and that's how you do HTTP requests, then you could mock that. You could pass in a, a fake version with view test utils um, mm-hmm. and test it that way. But okay. yeah, view test utils doesn't include methods for waiting until uh, all the pending promises have have been flushed for example or for running asynchronous tests like the, if you're actually running an asynchronous test that code is um handled by the test framework that you're using got it but by default if you were to update data in view test utils it still goes through lifecycle methods and is able to update appropriately and so only in the event that you're using, you're making like an async call using promises, for example, then you would be able to, then you could still like mock that functionality and still get the lifecycle effects that you would expect. Is that correct? <laughs> sort of. So, okay. so view test user, so view by default performs DOM updates uh, asynchronously, yeah. like it batches DOM updates and then it yeah. runs them on the next tick. And when we, started working on view test utils we decided that we'd uh, make it run synchronously because hmm. when you've okay. got you know multiple dom updates happening in a test you end up with like <laughs> pretty ugly tests where you're waiting for lots of things to happen and yeah. just, just writing async tests is just more it's more work like, there's more chance for you to mm-hmm. write tests that pass even though the assertion hasn't run sure for example so yeah we went we went with the decision to make it so that all the DOM updates happen synchronously. And uh, the original way that we did this was basically by running all of the render watches with a, an update function uh, that ViewTest users included. And we would call that function after any method that interacted with the uh, instance was called. So if mm-hmm. a trigger was called that might have ultimately caused some data to change, which means that the DOM should update. Mm-hmm. We would call update in view test utils. Yeah. Um, oh. But we, yeah, we, we've moved away from that. But the implementation that we have at the moment, so the, the implementation we have at the moment is basically we set all watches to be synchronous. And that basically means that everything updates synchronously. But... What we found out recently is that there are a few edge cases where it doesn't. 
basically you don't, you don't get the behavior that you expect to get mm-hmm. from uh, from from updating the uh, DOM. So at the moment, the, the few test users is still in beta, and this is like the big problem that we we need to solve before we release it in version one point oh. What what are some of the edge cases that uh, running your watches synchronously introduces? So it's basically if you've got lots of watches, if you have, if you have lot like too many watches, then okay. it just it takes so long for the for the update to happen. Or mm-hmm. so we 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 set the watches synch- to be synchronous, and recently there was a, an edge case where there was a guy who had like. I think it was it was an insane amount of watches, like mm-hmm. I don't know thirty thousand, forty thousand watches. Oh wow! Holy cow! Jeez! From some library that he would added. So basically, so in that case, we uh, just ran out of memory. Like we ended up in a uh, infinite loop, which was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, and the other edge cases are basically just certain if you have multiple watches that rely on each other mm-hmm. um there's a couple of cases where that means that the dom uh, doesn't update as you'd expect i see so yeah at the moment uh, i've got a pull request open um in view to actually add an async option mm-hmm. which would make it so the view test details could turn off the asynchronous updating in, in view core and we'd effectively get synchronous uh, updates without any of the edge cases and bugs. Um, but that does actually, that is actually slightly problematic because <laughs> that's only going to exist in view 2.6. So ah, hopefully yes. everybody's going to be able to, to go up to 2.6, but if they can't, then I'm not, basically they're not going to be able to get the non-buggy version of sync, sync updating. So there's some discussion at the moment about whether we should keep our buggy implementation <laughs> or, or or put out a warning basically saying that in, in a few months, anyone below view 2.6 isn't going to get synchronous updating. So you should turn it off now and refactor your tests to wait for DOM updates. Uh, and yeah, we haven't decided not to we haven't decided what to do yet that's interesting how how do you go about as as someone who is a maintainer of an open source library that's widely used how do you go about making those decisions how do you decide what goes in your library for example making the decision to make all of your test utils synchronous for instance like what is the process by which you go through figuring that out or making that decision Oh, so to make it all synchronous, so when we originally um, decided to build a library, there was basically a big kickoff thread with like 100 comments from lots of different people. Mm-hmm. And we ended up with the API, an API similar to what we have now. And yeah, there isn't too big of a change. And that was when we decided that we'd run everything synchronously. At the moment, we, we have an issue open to discuss what we should do going forward with the synchronous issue at the moment. And yeah, I, I'm not going to make a decision until I've spoken to some more people who, who are relying on the library and, and got their opinions. Uh, and on so that. 
And so you, the, the way you go about figuring out whether something is good or not for the library is to poll the audience or poll your community and see what exactly they're looking for and get their feedback, essentially. Yeah, that's basically it. Okay. Um, I mean, it is, yeah, it's quite difficult. I'll, like, I'll create an issue, but it's difficult to get users to to engage because I guess they're not really coming to the issue uh, tracker unless they've actually got a bug that they, they found or they've got a feature yeah. request. So, yeah, sometimes it will be, <laughs> be months before yeah. um, I get some input on some of the, some of the questions that I've yeah. had for the design. It's always fascinating because whenever you ask, especially, I mean, open source is a bad rap for this because it's like when you open the floodgates, so to speak, about and ask the community what exactly they want, there's a lot of feedback, mm, a lot of good, a lot of good, a lot of bad. And how do you filter through all of that to figure out what is the useful comments or like the things that you can actually use or that is beneficial to the library itself? Because there are multiple, there are so many people with opinions. How do you figure out, how do you filter all of that information? So like, I'd say most of the time there's a, a like prevailing um, opinion. Like often a lot of people feel some way and it's not too controversial. But mm. um, for example, we did have uh, quite a controversial uh, we made a controversial decision to remove uh, a set computed method. So you, you, you spoke earlier about how we have some methods where you can set the, uh, the, the state or the props of a view instance. Yeah. And uh, we originally also had a set computed where you could set a computed value. But mm-hmm. <laughs> the way that we implemented it was like, it's very difficult to implement. So we basically had to put, the component into a state that it wouldn't normally be able to get into, if that makes sense. So we basically have to set the computed value permanently and it wouldn't change again in the future. So, um, so you can't change it after you set it. I see. Yeah, so you wouldn't be able to change it after. So, the, so if you had a component and yeah, the computed value was supposed to change after you had set it, it wouldn't do yeah. that. Oh, there's a problem. So I can't remember who raised it uh, as a concern. I think it might have been uh, Thorsten, um, Linus Bork. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, he basically raised it somewhere. Maybe it was on, maybe it was in the issue tracker. But quite a few other people came forward and, it, and I also agreed with him. So we made an issue and then a lot of people came and said that they really didn't want us to remove it. Like they relied on it or used mm-hmm. it a lot in their unit test. There was, there was a lot of kickback. Like I think that that initial post had like more dislikes than it had thumbs up, oh, which is a hard. sign that you're, yeah, you're going <laughs> against the grain. Yes. But I think like in that case, you just had to make a decision. Yes. Of, we don't want to have this feature that can cause so many problems and, where we're putting your component into an unnatural state. And something that like a group of people that aren't represented in those discussions that I, I think are important to think about are newcomers. Like yeah. for every, for every piece of API that you add, you know, for every different utility that you add, that's something that may show up in people's apps that 
like, people learning to use view test utils will have to understand. You yeah, know, so, true. So how and, do you decide what would be good for those people? Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I think it's ideal to keep things as slim as possible and just keep the things that add the most value. But even for things like set value, which we were talking about earlier, you know, what it does is it's like not that much, but it, it does also work around like a gap in knowledge that a lot of web developers have and that they don't realize when you, you know, set something with you know, input.value equals new value, that it doesn't automatically trigger an input event yeah. in HTML. And oh, so, yeah, a lot of... Sorry. And so that's how it's making it easier for, for newcomers, even though it makes them learn like a new thing that isn't already part of you. Yeah, and a lot of people actually also think that if you dispatch an input event with a value, that that updates uh, an input's value. So, they, so a lot of people report bugs where they like trigger an input or a key down or a, some kind of event on an input with a, with a value and they expect that's going to update the actual value, but uh, it doesn't. Yeah, because they misunderstand like how the, the DOM API actually works. Yeah. I think there's also a, an interesting trade-off that you make when you create a library which is how much do you want to handhold your users and how much, for example, this having to update, like, for example, if you update an input event, you have to trigger the input in order for that to update. That is fairly common knowledge, or at least that's something that is in the DOM API itself. And so when you have something like set value or set checked or so on, that allows the user or newcomers to understand how to do it without you know, like getting all these bugs. But at the same time, it also can be a crutch because they won't know that, that you know, like the real way of doing it, or not the real way, but the original way that you would do it is you would set the input and then trigger the input. So is there, a, like, like, do you make that trade-off or how do you make that trade-off when you're creating an AP, the APIs for view test utils? So with set value and uh, set checked and set selected uh, in particular, basically just had a lot of issues from people who couldn't figure out how to set the value of a form and update the V model value. Sure. You can set the value of the form by just setting it and then that's, that's the new value. But to actually update the V model bound value, you need to trigger a, an event and it depends on the element. So it's like Completely. for a checkbox, you have to trigger a changed event yeah. Um, I think you have to trigger a changed event for a, an, an option if you're yes, setting an option in select to be selected. Yep. So that was like, I, I, there's probably like five or six issues with lots of comments of people trying to figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. So in that case, I think um, the way I decided was by there being uh, demand for people, yeah, people wanting to know how to do it. And so do you add that note in the documentation? I haven't looked too deeply into this, but I'm, I'm curious if that is something that you add in the docs just as a way of like, hey, this is a method that you can use in order to trigger an input update. But like, if you want to do it, like this is actually what it's doing under the hood so that people understand like what exactly the library is doing. <laughs> it's funny, it's funny you say that because, uh, so we released set value last week. Yeah. and um, wrote the docs up mm -hmm. last weekend as well. And basically we didn't. We didn't add that information. Uh 
but one of our contributors has made an issue suggesting that we do. And I, I agree with him. So we're now going to uh, oh, add great. some details on that. But originally we didn't. But yeah, I think you're right. Like a little hint or just a short sentence that tells, that gives people enough information to go off and investigate if they want to. I think that's a really good way of, of writing the docs. Yeah, that's what I loved about Views docs, actually, when I first started reading them, was it like, yeah, it was simple, but for some things it would give you links or a bit of direction of where to research to find out more. Yeah. It's, it's very beginner friendly, but not prohibitive if you want to get deeper and more advanced in your knowledge and to, to go a little further, which I think is the, is where a library really shines if it can do that, because then people will really want to get engaged with that specific tool or that specific API. And, and, and that's really, really great. And I've seen a lot of beginners really appreciate that because they're like, I understand it and I could use it immediately. And then like, as I advanced, as like they advance in their understanding of the specific thing, they're like, oh, it can do this and it can do this and it can do it. And, and it's, it's, it's wonderful to see that, that path that you take. So I have a question. View, view test utils, it's still in beta, right? Yeah. So that means it's like not done or not stable? Yeah, it's not stable. So... Like what, what's not stable about it? Like what, what is sort of still in flux? Like what do you still plan to add before releasing? Like that kind of thing. But what are, what are the soon so future plans in current state? So the, to get it released, there in my eyes, there's only two things you need to do. One is finalize the scope slots API. So we, we added uh, recently the ability to pass scope slots into the mounted component. And I'm not sure... Similar to the slots option? Similar to the slots option, but it only takes a string. And I, I think we could maybe improve it to take more, take like a component, for example. Like at the moment, you can't pass a, a view component in. I, I don't know. I haven't, I, I think that we need to look at the scope slots option and like finalize it before we release. But that's relatively small. The, the biggest thing is to uh, decide on what we're going to do with synchronous updating. Like I said, I think that we, you know, we're going to make a change to view core and then use that. But yeah, we have to decide whether we're going to have like a different API effectively for people who are using view less than 2.6, which isn't ideal, uh, or whether we're going to have a, a buggy implementation. So we need to we need to decide on that. So I hope, I'm hoping to get it released in the next couple of months. I, I guess those people could always like stick to a previous version of you test utils. Yeah. You know, so we could encourage people to use like, you know, you know, this beta version while they still need to, like while they're still working on migrating to 2.6. But like, yeah, for, for me personally, like migrating to 2.6 isn't that big of a deal. It's not like you have to make huge changes to your application. Yeah, exactly. It's not a breaking change, right? So unless you're digging into the internals, you should just be able to upgrade and it, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah what I'm thinking. It just feels it just feels a bit strange having a different dip that big of a different behavior between different versions of view. But I, I, I guess I guess it's probably fine. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think like we could even just like show a little warning saying, uh, "Hey, it looks like you're using view, you know, version da 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 da. If you're using before two point six, you know, you actually need to use this, and then we quit." 
Yeah, that, that's that's like exactly what no, I would say. We just like throw an error that says that. <laughs> throw an error. <laughs> so yeah, you can't use it unless you use V two point six. Yeah, I mean that, that way it's it's easier for you to maintain, and I think that might be better for users overall. It could you know, be. Because At the then moment, we run all of our tests against each minor version of you because there are like small differences between the internals. So so we have to run tests against all the versions, but. Uh, it definitely makes it more time-consuming to develop when you're supporting each of those versions when you're using some internals sometimes. Uh, I also feel like... Yes, sorry, go ahead. On the version. I was just going to say, I also feel like the people who are like serious about tests are also going to be the people who are serious about keeping their dependencies up to date. Yeah, true. Like, generally, like those are, those are going to be people who are going to want to like keep up to date with the latest view anyway, generally speaking. At least that would be my... That would be my thinking, and it. I think it's been my experience, like in working with people through consulting. Yeah, I think it should be the case. I was just, I mean, I know that people have been stuck on minor versions before because they've relied on some some internal property in, like, a, I don't know, a vNode or an instance that's changed. But yeah, but those are usually like small things, not like something that's spread throughout their application. And if and if they, it is something spread throughout their entire application. It's kind of their fault. <laughs> <laughs> when we also when I also potentially see more and more people that as apps get more stable and mission critical and they get more of them that they start being and maybe the apps themselves get less few features and themselves get more stable that you get stuck on versions and you get less resources to keep up to date with the latest version. You get a little bit more nervous that a minor version is released. You don't want it to break. And so then you can start seeing pe people more and more stuck on minor versions. Yeah. I do yeah. want to stress, I do want to stress though, that if people are upgrading to a, like from a minor version and like, they're not accessing like APIs that are not public, and the vast, vast, vast majority of people like do not ever try to do that. And we make it very clear that if people are accessing those APIs, they are on their own. Then they, they won't, they, they shouldn't encounter breaking changes. So it, it should really only be like the super, super power users who want to like dig into mega internals. And, and in often cases, like when they feel like they need to do that, it's because they're doing something wrong. In a lot of cases that I've seen. You know, there's actually a much simpler solution that they could be using. And they're doing this as sort of like a, an over-engineered hack, <laughs> you know, like making their life much harder and, and more complicated uh, because it seems the simplest to them at the moment. Like it seems like the most straightforward solution to just learn more about this underlying API. I was curious if there were any major bugs. Uh, uh, in details. Yeah, that people need to know about. It's just the, the synchronous bug that we spent a lot of time talking about. That's the only major bug. The, there is another thing. It's not really a bug, but it's a, it's, it really sucks. So basically at the moment, we, we can't really treat functional components as, as components. Like you can't call the methods like set props or, or even props. You can't get the props of a functional component because because we, like we can't we can't actually access that from the V node because it has no so, instance because it has no instance so that's a shame I don't know if there's anything we can do about that we were talking about making a change in the core to make have some access maybe to like the the original uh, render context or 
yeah, some way of accessing. Or yeah, maybe if you had the original render context, then you could re-render the functional component to to change the props. Um, but yeah, we, that requires a change in the core, and I think that's quite a, an annoying feature of uh, view test utils at the moment. Yeah, because you could have you know your tests written for for a component, and then you could change it to a functional component, and now you can't test that that component is receiving the correct props anymore because of the limitation of view test utils and functional components. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, functional components are stateless, so it makes sense that you can't, like, test the state in, in some ways, you know? Yeah, true. You, you but I guess output, you do want but to really, like, it, it. it's just, like, input and output. So you can give it input, and you can test its output. But you can't yeah, reach it. if you want to test it, you're rendering it with the correct props, for example. Like, if you're... Yeah, if you, if you just want to write a test that asserts that you written this you're rendering this component with the correct props rather than what it's actually rendering i think that's a fairly common use case i actually don't like doing that so i I, yeah i probably wouldn't do that either but i but i know that people do try to do it and they get confused um that what uh, that they can't do that because that's something that it doesn't typically like break if i'm like if i have a computed property or something that i'm like passing as a prop like I'll test that computed property rather than like testing what I passed to that component because yeah. the part that's likely to break is like the computation. It's not like, did I type this correctly? You know, which will just like throw an immediate error. If like, there's not like, you know, if I, if I make a typo in the computed property, then it's likely I'll be referencing something that isn't actually a property on the instance. And then I get an error. So I'll, I'll know immediately. So like that, that's, the, that's the part that's least likely to break to me. Yeah, but people test it and then they'll change their component from a non-functional to a functional component and then the, mm-hmm. the test breaks. So yeah. I mean, one solution would, uh, at the moment, like in, even when you shallow render, you have this problem, but we could change it. We could change the code so that uh, when you shallow render, you can check the props of a functional component um, but I don't know if that's a good if if it's good having a different API like that between uh, shallow and shallow mounted um, render tree and a mounted render tree. And on my teams, I just tell people not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's yeah. a valid way of testing. Mm-hmm. I think uh, a lot of like Airbnb, for example, I know that they. Um, at least some of their teams, they don't actually run any end-to-end tests. They just run shallow unit tests for all of their components. And like they have a component library that's unit tested, and then they pick those components out, and pretty much the tests will just check that the components are rendered with the, the correct props. And like yeah, it does something in reaction to uh, DOM events. But I think like that is a valid way of testing if you want to test like that. I mean, I don't personally, but it works for some people. Yeah, I just, I just think it's like, it feels to me like a, a little bit wrong. Like it, it it's, it, it's incidentally testing what you want to test, but it's also testing something else that like you don't actually care about. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult, and also it makes it really difficult to to refactor as well if you've got hundreds of 
unit tests just checking that a component renders another component. Like it makes it. Yeah, and then if you decide to uh, use another component. <laughs> yeah, if, yeah, if you want to split yeah, that exactly. component out like, into several other components, then it, it, it's not a very uh, inviting. Yeah, it does uh, kind of feel like the like not exactly the right way to solve the problem to me, but. But yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a gotcha, I'd say. But apart from that, yeah, the, the bugs at the moment are just to do with synchronous rendering. Uh, sorry, synchronous updating. And we're going to work on that, get 1.0 released. And then in the future, the, the next thing to do is to move the whole repo to TypeScript. So I'm really looking forward to that. Mainly really? because it's going to keep the... Yeah. So, so mainly because it's going to keep the type definitions in sync with the... Uh, the actual API, which I find quite hard to do at the moment. Like I often forget, or it gets out, the type definitions get out of sync, or they're not completely correct sometimes. Um, yeah, right now they're an extra step like updating documentation. And this yeah, way so it's easy to sometimes forget, and it's hard to check, but you can't automate it. But uh, if, you, if the whole repo is written in TypeScript, then like the type definitions are going to be the live versions, which would be really good. And those type and, definitions uh, are really useful for like VS Code users who like can can automatically see when they're pulling in methods, like what the what the API is, like what yeah, uh, like for create local view, like what uh, arguments it accepts and what it returns. Yeah, definitely. Because at the moment we're using Flow, which is. Okay, but I think the traction's with TypeScript now. Like, I don't think it was obvious which was going to be the more popular way of adding types to JavaScript. But at least in the view community, it seems like most people are using TypeScript. There's demand for type definitions. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Uh, I th- it broke out too much, Divya. Uh, we heard it. We were, you're wondering if the, the decision, if you type oh. it into the chat, I can, I can ask. Yeah. Was the decision to move to TypeScript driven by the, the community? Yes. Yeah, there, I think the, the view three is probably going to be written in TypeScript. So that was a big factor. But yeah, also it just makes sense because of how many people are using TypeScript with view test details. It makes more sense for us to be uh, using TypeScript to do the type checking so that we can keep it in sync with the the API, like I was saying. Whereas I think we've had yep. one request maybe for the flow types. So yeah, the, it's partly driven by the fact that Vue 3 is going to probably be written in TypeScript and also mm-hmm. 
by the fact that we want to keep our type definitions in sync. And it and the users of Utest Utils, TypeScript's definitely more popular. Gotcha. So I hope this I hope this goes through. If someone were to co- want to contribute to Utest Utils, how would they go about doing that? Um, so basically, go to the repo, check the issue tracker, and either find a, a bug that they'd like to fix. Probably not. Probably not the best way to start contributing actually because it might involve a lot of digging around in the code base but or maybe find a feature uh, that has a, an intend to implement label and mm-hmm. uh, look into how you could do that ask questions if, if you have any open a, open a PR as, as soon as possible and then I can uh, look over it and give you any advice or um, tips on where to go but there are lots of other active contributors who will uh, review PRs and give advice. So yeah, that's the best way to, to get started. Cool. Uh, also, um, people don't normally think of it as contributing, but like getting involved in um, feature requests and like discussions about the API, that's uh, really valuable. So if you just, you want to contribute, but you don't have the time to, uh, implement a feature just coming along and getting involved in some of those discussions is really useful that's a that's a really good point are there any other final questions before you wrap up i have a i have sort of a personal question Go so right now i think css compilation wasn't working very well for a while and uh an option was added to disable it and that's what I use in my applications right now. But I haven't actually checked back in a little while in the last few releases whether it's working better now. No, is this Vue Jest? Yeah, this is for Vue Jest. Yeah, sorry. So we, I mean, we t- we extract the classes now uh, and and add those. But yeah, I think it's working well. I think that the for extracting the classes from the SCSS and uh, stylus, I think that it is it, fine. We don't actually compile the CSS, though. I don't think we're ever going to do that. We, we just parse it and then get some of the, add, add the class attribute to the view instance. I think it's a class. I actually haven't uh, worked on this in a while, but I think that you add, uh, you can have like class properties on the view instance. You might know this best than me, Chris. Whether you can have class properties in the view instance? Well, what do you mean exactly? <laughs> I don't know. I'm getting. I'm keep confusing myself. But basically, we do support compilation of CSS, and we like. I think you can have dynamic classes defined in your CSS, and that gets added to the uh, view instance. And we d- we do that. Oh yeah, yeah, have... yeah. So like with modules, for example, like those are dynamic classes. Yeah. So we do, we do that, um, but we don't actually compile the CSS, or we we do, but only to get those extract those dynamic classes. So that you don't get undefined property. Yeah. That makes sense. So basically to keep things from breaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Because I don't, I mean, we could like compile the CSS and, and like, I guess yeah, like, well, do what Webpack does, but I, like I... What I've been doing for CSS modules is just setting it to an empty object. And that's actually good enough. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we do that as well. Like, or set, set like dollar sign style to an empty object. Yeah, but yeah, that's supported in Vue.js now. 
So you should be able to remove the warning or the flag. Excellent. I'll experiment with that. And then I may, uh, may open up an issue. Uh, for <laughs> anyone else listening right now, also the, the latest version of U-Test Utils, I don't remember off the top of my head what exactly it was, but in beta 18, right? That's the latest version right now as of recording. It uh, doesn't quite work. Uh, there was something that was broken for me. So I, I have to lock to beta 17. Uh, but I know there's already an issue for whatever the, the problem was. And Ed's on the case. I was hoping you wasn't, weren't going to bring that up, Chris. Huh? <laughs> I was hoping you weren't going to bring up the... <laughs> well, the I wanted to, well, I wanted to bring it up in case people ran into it. Well, we're actually on uh, beta 19 now. So hopefully that, that bug's fixed for you. Oh, you fixed it? Oh, I fixed, beautiful. Yeah, fixed a okay. bug. Okay. You fixed a bug. Well, I'll test beta 19. <laughs> And you, dear listeners, can too. Remember, this is beta software. Like, in order to innovate, we make mistakes sometimes, and that's okay. <laughs> um, I'm curious about using a TDD with your test utils. Is there, does that work fine? So, yeah, I think that it works well. I, I follow TDD often when I write applications. And yeah, you, you can totally do it with your test utils. I think that following strict TDD when you literally write a test before every single line of code doesn't really work when you're adding presentation, presentational markups. Like if you're writing a test that checks that you render a div with the correct class, I, I, I don't think that works very well. But what you can do is just write, uh, like figure out the core functionality of a component, write some tests or write a test, watch it fail, make it pass. Do that until you've got the, the logic of your component and then basically write all of the, the, add all the markup without writing any tests. And if you want to, you could add a snapshot at the end to, to make sure that the markup that you did add doesn't change. There are, there are no unintended changes to that in the future. So yeah, I think you can, you can do TDD, but if you try and follow it strictly, as in you believe that you shouldn't write a single line of code without having a test for it, I think that you'll, you'd end up with a very unmaintainable code base. Yeah, I, I not, do something. Not unmaintainable, but it would take you a long time to rewrite the tests. I do something similar when I have to do some kind of prototyping. Like when I, when I don't already have in my head exactly like what the component is going to be like and how it's going to work, then I, I can't do TDD because even my initial idea of how it's going to work is probably going to change. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the thing, right? TDD, it kind of assumes that you know the specifications before you write the code but if you if you don't know the specifications as in you don't know how you're going to implement the, the feature then it is it's difficult to follow tdd but but there are some cases where like it can be pretty straightforward so for example if you have uh, a component that like accepts like markdown and renders some html that's something that is, is very straightforward like what it should do yeah. And so, and so that's much easier to test and that's much easier or that's much easier to do TDD with because like you, you know exactly what it's going to do. You're not going to think like, Oh, should I have a button or should it, you know, should it actually be a checkbox? And yeah, definitely. But even if you knew exactly what you're going to write, I still don't think that you, I mean, first, if you know exactly what, like how you're going to style your component, then you're a, you're a, you're a CSS genius in my book because every time I write some CSS, it, and then I look in the browser, it never comes out quite how I expected it to. Um, <laughs> I feel that same way. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 
If you can write all of that with, and never change it and get it perfect, then TDD like for your markup and uh, yeah, adding classes and, and styling might work. But yeah, I think just following it to add the core functionality to components um, works well if you know the specifications. Cool. And then my final question was, do we, or is there some kind of example or sets of examples that you recommend where people can see like a, a realistic application that has tests and like has realistic components to see like what like good tests might look like? So, yeah, so that's a great segue into one of my picks, which is my, my book that I've been writing, uh, Testing Vue.js Applications. So I, I've, I've written a book, and as, as part of that, I have built a Hacker News clone with tests, and that's on GitHub, so anybody can, can look at that. So if you want to look at that repo, you could just go to github.com slash edyabra, if you know how to spell my name, and then... Uh, few hyphen hacker news and there's a like a hacker news clone with unit tests snapshot tests and end-to-end tests and, and by the way i can almost guarantee you dear listener that you do not know how to spell his name it is <laughs> <Yeah>. actually it <laughs> is e-d-d-y-e-r-b-u-r-g-h so you know <laughs> while while we say yar it's it's it sounds more like your, which is why everyone, or it looks more like your, which is why everyone calls him like your bro. It looks like yeah, yeah. There's no way. Yeah, I mean, to people who aren't to people who aren't used to, uh, you know, uh, your name and your region, I guess. I, I don't think anybody's ever pronounced it correctly the first time because, Anybody? like you said, oh, uh, no, <laughs> because <laughs> it. I don't know it. it it's a bit strange, right? Like it's Y-E-R, but you pronounce it Y-E-R. But I don't know any other word that I can compare that to. Like the, the, the final part of it's borough. And I can say, oh yeah, you know, like Edinburgh. Similar sound, right? So it's yeah. spelled the same way. I can't think of a single word where the E-R makes a, an R sound. I think your family just decided they weren't posh enough. <laughs> so, so they had to posh up that first syllable. <laughs> Well, the thing is, right, historically, it was spelt with an A. And somewhere along the line, somebody decided to, to remove the, the A and use the E instead. So I don't know if that was a typo somewhere a few hundred years ago that's, oh, that's so gone funny. down the line. But, a historic uh, yeah. typo. <laughs> but you're sticking with the original pronunciation. I'm sticking with the original pronunciation, yeah. <laughs> All right. Great. Now that we've covered final questions, we can move on to picks. Joe, do you have any picks for us? Yeah. yeah. Yes, I do. All right. I recently tried out a new product uh, called a Rocketbook, which is like this reusable notebook where you just write in it. You have to use these kind of special pens. You can erase it, but before you erase your notes, it's like an erasable notebook, but before you erase them, there's, they have an app where you can, there's a little QR code in the corner. You take a picture of the notes that you took, and then you can, uh, along the bottom, kind of check a bunch of different check marks, and it'll automatically either take your notes and email them to you or put them in your Evernote or in a Google Drive, or there's a bunch of other locations. It's called Rocketbook. It, it's kind of cool. I'm trying to 
figure out actually a, a real flow for using it in my life. But mm-hmm. I've been I've been trying it out, and so far I'm pretty impressed uh, with their implementation. And so I'm going to pick that Rocket Book. And I also watched a recent YouTube video that I found pretty interesting. It was called the VS Code Top 10 Pro Tips. And if you just hit that up on YouTube, just that string, you'll find it. But it's actually got a bunch of really good tips for using Visual Studio Code. And I've been using Visual Studio Code for quite a while. And they listed quite a few things that uh, I wasn't either aware of or um, were kind of new to me. So those will be my picks. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, that's a good one. Is that related to the video series that Sarah Drasner was creating on like things you didn't know about Visual Studio Code? Is that the VS Code can do that? Yes, no, I VS think Code this, can do that. Okay. Like it's totally different people. So ah, okay. I haven't watched much of the VS Code can do that. So I imagine maybe there's a lot of stuff that's similar, but it's just this guy's personal stuff like, hey, here's these 10 things, but they're really good. So we'll have to check that out. Chris, what are your picks? So uh, before the show today, uh, we were talking a little bit about sleep. Last night, Joe didn't get quite as much sleep as he wanted. And I I sometimes find myself in the same situation. (laughs) And uh, so I wanted to share a few tips for sleep, things that like work for me that, that I found that may work for you, they may not work for you. The first one is that I've noticed if I keep working after 10 p.m., uh, and when I say working, I mean like doing something creative. It doesn't have to be billable, like, uh, you know, where I'm solving some kind of problem. Then I'm much more likely to stay up late uh, than if I start like winding down at 10 p.m., then I can fall asleep at sort of a normal time for me. Uh, but after 10 p.m., I'm really in the danger zone. And yeah, another... I actually try and uh, go, to, go to bed by 10 p.m., <laughs> <laughs> and that yeah, works so, out quite well. Yeah, so that specific time will be different for different people. Uh, but yeah, I, I find that like having a, a point at which I stop working is, is important for me sometimes, especially when I need to make sure that I get sleep. You know, or I always want to make sure that I get sleep, but especially when I can't sleep in. Yeah. So another one is I find that every night if I stay up too late, there's always a time when like, I start getting hungry again and I want some kind of snack. And if you hit that time, it's really hard to go to bed. Like you don't want to go to bed hungry because then you like wake up hungry too. And so I, I always want a snack and that keeps me up for like another hour at least uh, when I might not have wanted to. So, you know, trying to get to bed before that time where you start getting hungry, I, I think can be re- really useful. And then one of my final tips is uh, my brain responds to like something called ASMR. Uh, I think it stands for uh, Auto Sensory Meridian Response. And what that means is that there are certain things, like certain sounds and certain motions that cause like an intense, like very relaxing brain tingle in my head (laughs) that really like blisses me out, which is really good before going to sleep. Uh, And YouTube has a lot of ASMR videos. Like some of my favorites are like watching someone fold towels, like just like very intentional hand movements. It's great. Uh, Like crinkly sounds and things like that. That's great. (laughs) 
some of them might seem a little bit weird because like uh, one of my triggers, that's what they're called. Uh, and a lot of other people's triggers is like whispering. So if someone like watches you watching a video where someone is like whispering things to you, it's like, it's a little bit weird. It seems a little bit weird. <laughs> yeah. I just Googled it. And one of the top videos is uh, sensational mouth sounds and breathing. ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you do not if you do not get ASMR, it's going to seem very very strange to you. Uh, but if you're someone who has at some moments in your life uh, experienced this, like I remember the the first time for me was when I was at a someone's birthday party. I think my cousin's birthday party when I was four, and someone's uncle, I think my cousin's uncle, came by and sat at a table where I was sitting by myself, and didn't say anything, but just picked up a piece of paper and started making some origami. And I just like watching him make the origami. And then he just like put it in the middle of the table. And it, it was, it was great. I had, I had such good, <laughs> such good ASMR. So check that out. You may get into it. If you don't get into it, it's going to seem weird. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like with every episode, I get to know you a little bit more. And I hope... <laughs> <laughs> Whether you like it or not. Some people really get ASMR from Bob Ross. So if, you've, if, you, like, if you're an American and you grew up watching Bob Ross, uh, which I did not, but I've seen it since then. And I do get some ASMR. Like the way he's soft-spoken and like the very deliberate like hand movements and uh, you know, the sounds of the brush and things like that, that, that gives a lot of people ASMR. That's fair. I always just assume he was a meme. I never watched the actual thing. I didn't know it was a real thing, but it is. And it's very cool. It's a very cool video. Ed, do you have any picks for us? Yeah, so one of my picks is my book that I mentioned earlier, Testing DJS Applications, um, which I have been writing for nearly a year now, and it's nearly ready to be sent off to production. I think it's going off to production next weekend. So that's Yay. really exciting. Yeah, and so this will come out in about two weeks. So by the time people listen to this. Oh, perfect. Well, it's already out now on an early access program. So you guys can, uh, can purchase a copy, copy now if you'd like to. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, my other pick was uh, this library called JS Code Shift, which I've been using recently. It's basically a library to do large refactors on a project. And uh, what it does is it goes through all of uh, your, your JavaScript files in, like a, in a big project, and it gives you the ability to make edits by changing the uh, AST, the abstract syntax tree. So it goes through a project, finds JavaScript files, converts them into AST, and then you can manipulate that AST and do your refactors in there, and then it will uh, convert that AST back into JavaScript. So if you want to like do a refactor where you change maybe uh, the name of a, a module that you're importing, and you don't just want to do a find and replace or, or like a run a, a, a regex because you could accidentally change something that isn't uh, an import, you can use this JS code shift writer transformer that only changes import statements and then run that against as many projects as you like and safely transform 
uh, your code. So I've got really into that recently. That's awesome. And lastly, my picks, I have two. One is a little controversial because uh, it's a post that is titled, um, it's by Brad Frost and it's called, uh, no, it's, it's by Dave Rupert actually. And it's called the React is just a JavaScript myth. And it goes into detail about how, so it, there's a common phrase that people say, or people often say that React is just JavaScript. And he goes into detail at that, that React is much more than just JavaScript. It's not a diss on React. It's more just that React does a lot more than just JavaScript. And so it goes into detail on that. And the reason I say it's controversial is because the comments are, are quite extensive and, and very, uh, there's some angry comments in there. But I think what he says and his comments are very interesting uh, and, and opens up for, it, it allows for a very interesting discussion around that. And my second pick is a talk that was given at Bang Bang Con, which is a conference run in New York out of the Recur Center, which is a retreat for programmers, which I guess I will add that to my picks as well. The Recur Center is really awesome and really cool. Um, and anyway, so Bang Bang Con, Con is just a conference where people talk about really cool programming things. And there's one talk in particular that my friend Vibov gave about typed holes, which is a functional programming concept. And it's, I don't want to go into detail on that, but his talk, which is called Moving Towards Dialogue, Collaborating with Your Computer Using Typed Holes, is incredibly fascinating. It's only 10 minutes, but it, it introduces a concept that I had never heard of and I had no idea of, and so I think it's really cool. And so those two are my picks for today. And, and I so... What? Sorry, if I could just add one more thing. So I just, I just wanted to yeah. stress, especially for listeners, uh, just because like React isn't just JavaScript, again, like, like Divya said, doesn't mean it's bad. Vue isn't just JavaScript. Angular isn't just JavaScript. No frameworks are just JavaScript. If they were just JavaScript, they wouldn't have any abstractions, and so they wouldn't be useful. <laughs> that is, that, that so, is very correct. <laughs> so it's absolutely good. Uh, that like none of these things are just JavaScript. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was the point, and that was uh, what that post is about. It just talks specifically about React, but I think it can be translated into other frameworks as well because all frameworks are not just JavaScript. They add extra things on top of it, on top of JavaScript, and so there's a lot more abstractions to it. And with that, we conclude this episode of Views on View. Thank you for joining us. Until next week, enjoy the view and fin. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.